Welcome to the Sport Feels Life podcast, where we're bringing you interviews with coaches and athletes at the top of their game. This is a community to support coaches, athletes, and fans who share a passion for making the world a better place through athletics. We are serving our community and providing a variety of resources to grow and win as a team in the sports we play and the life we live. We are your hosts. I'm Ashley. And I'm Megan. And we're so excited to bring you all things Sport Feels Life. Isaac Jean Paul is a visually impaired Paralympic track and field athlete who set a world record in the men's high jump at the 2017 World Para Athletics Championship in London. You guys are going to love hearing about Isaac's journey and how he has cleared the bar on so many of life's challenges to defy the limitations that most people thought would hold him down. Now, he's training at the Olympic Training Center in San Diego, aiming for the 2021 Paralympic Games in Tokyo. We hope you enjoy this episode that is packed full of inspiration with the one and only Isaac Jean Paul. Welcome, Isaac. We're so excited to have you today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's a huge honor for us. I would love for you to just share with us a little bit about who you are, your background, and maybe how you got to where you are today, and just share a little bit more about your story with our listeners. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, first and foremost, my name is Isaac John Paul. Um, I'm, I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I am currently a Paralympic track and field athlete. Um, Just discovered the Paralympics in 2017 and it has been a crazy ride, um, I must say. Well, give you a little backstory about myself. Um, Being from Chicago, at the age of two, I was diagnosed with a eye condition called juvenile retinoschisis. Um, Juvenile retinoschisis is an eye condition where in the back of the eye, the retina is detached there's detached deformation in the retinas and um, it affects my central and peripheral vision so in my left eye to give you a better idea my left eye um, has no peripheral vision it has all tunnel vision but it's my strongest eye in my right eye which is my weaker eye it has all the peripheral vision but of course it's the weaker eye in the light time but it totally flip-flops. So at night, my left eye is totally blind and my right eye is like the stronger eye and it sees everything. Um, throughout my whole life, my parents thinking that, you know, knowing that I have this impairment, they're thinking like, oh my God, how's my, my child gonna survive in this world? And he's, he's not able to see. And the best advice that my doctors gave my parents was allow Isaac to experience his life whole. Don't limit him, don't hold him back, let him live within his disability. And that has proven to be the best advice my doctors could have ever given my parents. So shout out to Dr. Temla Wise, she's my ophthalmologist. Shout out to Dr. LaFranco, who was my retina specialist, and I still keep in touch with them today. Um, So I definitely want to thank them for that. Um, For the most part, you know, with having that information from my doctors to my parents, I was putting every sport imaginable. I feel like sports was my outlet where I can just not worry about my impairment and I can just enjoy myself. With that being said, 
I wasn't just like your average athlete. I was ex exceptionally like good at all my athletics. Um, basketball being my love and still is kind of my love, but I don't play it as much. Um, but basketball was my first love. I, I remember being a kid watching Kobe Bryant, you know, win his championships with the Lakers, who's my favorite basketball player at all time, man. And then my mom, my mom is like my second favorite basketball player. Don't tell her I tell you this because she's going to hold this against me my whole life. But I always wanted to be better than my mom in basketball to the point where I wanted to do everything that she did, but better. My mom is a Hall of Famer at her university, Lewis University, which is the same university I ended up going to, um, which is quite ironic. Um, but just to give you a little taste of my life and my family, we just grew up playing basketball. So it was just like, this is what I'm going to do. My whole life, I always wanted to be a professional athlete. Like, that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be the best basketball player. I did. It wasn't good enough to just be in the NBA. I wanted to be the best player in the NBA, and I worked my ass off for it. For the most part, you know, growing up in Chicago, playing basketball, idolizing Kobe Bryant, idolizing my mom, you know, that's what I felt that made me feel normal because nobody knew when you look at me, you wouldn't see that I have a visual impairment. You wouldn't tell. And then you definitely wouldn't like see it when I played the sport. Cause you really couldn't tell. Cause I fit, I blended in and I felt comfortable. You know, that's the one place where I felt comfortable and I felt accepted, you know, whereas in school, it was totally different. Like in school, I felt like I was this spectacle that everybody looked at because I had these reading devices that stood out and it made me feel so uncomfortable to the point where, you know, in my high school career, I stopped showing up to school because I was just so uncomfortable. I would act out, you know what I'm saying, by skipping class and doing whatever that I wanted to do, you know what I'm saying? And that's not the way to go about things. You got to take things head on. But I was so fixated on being this athlete. I thought my athletics would solve all my problems. And um, I think the most pivotal moment in my life and my disability and learning my disability was when I was 15. And, you know, at the age of 15, every high schooler, you know, wants to drive. You want to have that sense of independence. You want to have that sense of freedom. You know, and it kind of messed me up because I saw that, you know, with being able to drive, it was a correlation to manhood, my masculinity. And in my head, I'm thinking being a man and being masculine was the man behind the wheel, the man in charge, the, the captain of the ship. And I, I looked at that and I saw that to be in the physical form of driving. And I knew I would never have that opportunity or that privilege because of my situation. So my sense of masculinity ended up being, all right, how can I find my masculinity? It took me some time. It took me like up until this point to understand what my masculinity was and how I shaped it. And it, it isn't necessarily about driving. It's more of how do you see yourself? How, how do others perceive you and what you do instead of what you can do? Um, so I had to learn like all of that at a young age because I find myself to be very independent, you know, very self-driven, um, and just wanting to do everything my way, not in a 
like stubborn, oh, I don't like to take criticism, but in a sense of the independency, you know, I, I cherish, I cherish that. And knowing that I couldn't have that at that age, I had to, you know, change my perspective on a lot of things um, and how I navigate the world. And that's a little bit. And then, you know, here I am today. I'm a Paralympic athlete. Um, I'm in a community that I kind of, I would say, try to hide from through my athletics. But now I'm, I'm embracing this community that, you know, I'm constantly learning from. I'm learning from others. I'm learning more about myself. I'm learning more about my disability as I go. And like being part of the Paralympics really opened my eyes to that anything is possible, no matter what the circumstances are. You literally could accomplish anything. And it just takes that drive. It takes that motivation and that will to keep going despite your circumstance. You know what I'm saying? Unforeseen circumstances because my parents didn't know that I was going to be blind. You know what I'm saying? They didn't know that nobody would have known that until I stepped out and things happened. So when you, when you're faced with these circumstances, you, the best thing you you can do is live with them and accept them and then navigate around them. And now I'm just learning more and more about myself through my uh, own self journey through the sport and just, everything that is so inspirational thank you for sharing all of that it's to me it's just incredible your journey and how far you've come I mean you are still whether you're a para athlete or just a professional athlete I think correct me if I'm wrong but your statistics are still really impressive um yeah. so tell us a little bit about how your path went down to you know become an exceptional track athlete what what drew you into that sport? Oh, man, it's crazy. So it's a funny story. So um, mind you, growing up playing basketball my whole life, I didn't pay attention to track. Like I knew I wanted to be an NBA superstar. That's what I wanted to do. So in high school, um, I made my freshman, year, uh, freshman basketball team, and there was, I knew for a fact, I'm about to be the next LeBron James after making my freshman year basketball team, you know? so. Um, I was, I was good. And that, that was my focus. I was fixated on basketball. I didn't know anything other than basketball. And then sophomore year comes around, you know, it, my sophomore or my senior, not my senior, my summer, the summer going into my sophomore year, um, we had summer camp and I made every summer uh, camp team for my high school. And then tryouts come around in the fall and I get cut. And I'm like kind of confused because I know I'm good enough. I, I made every team my, uh, that summer, so how come I didn't make the team now? I'm kind of confused. And I, uh, I asked the coach, you know, what is it I need to work on to ensure that I make the team the following year? And he would never look me in the eyes. He would just always say, oh, well, you just work on your handles. He would just throw something out there. So I took it, and I was just like, all right, I need to work on my handles. So that, that whole year, that whole summer, I'm working on my handles. I'm doing everything imaginable to ensure that my handles is up to par. There's no, there's no way I'm going to get cut my junior year. I'm making this team. I worked on everything he needed to work on and then some. Junior year comes around, I get cut again. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not getting it. I did everything you asked, asked of me and I'm still not making a team. And I say, hey, uh, coach, uh, what can I do? What, do I, what else do I need to work on 
to to make this team and he he looks at me he's like well you know you're kind of small you know you need to be taller you know get bigger or something you know you need more weight on you so that's what I I focused on being in the weight room and I remember uh watching a story about Michael Jordan and he was going through the same issue he was getting cut and the coach was telling him he was too short and his mom would tell him to put salt in his shoes so I'm saying, all right, well, if Michael Jordan did it, I can do it too. So I'm going into the kitchen. I'm pouring salt in the shoes. My mom looking at me like, what the hell are you doing with my kitchen salt? You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I'm trying to get taller. I'm hanging upside down, trying to, you know, stretch out my vertebrates and stuff. You know, I'm, I'm doing whatever it takes to make this team. Now, I know you guys probably been in school, and I know – you probably had tests that you would study for and you'd be like, man, I study my butt off for this test. I'm going to ace this exam. You know, that, that, that grind, you know what I'm saying? So that's how I felt coming into my senior year. I was well prepared. I did whatever it took, everything. I focused on my shot. I focused on my dribbling and, you know, of course I didn't get taller. I'm still, you know, the short guy, but I had other things that compensated for my lack of height. Um, so I knew going, going into my senior year that I was going to make this team tryouts come around and I get cut. And now I'm like distraught because this is my last year. How am I going to go to like the big D one schools? If I can't even make my high school basketball team, what's wrong with me? So it's my senior year. It's the last three months of high school. And I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do? Like, I, I'm not going to be able to play basketball. I need to find something else. And I was sitting at my friend's house during school. I was skipping class. <laughs> and um, we were watching Sports Center. And on Sports Center was Devin Hester and Sports Science. And it was Devin Hester on one side of the TV. And it was a cheetah on the other side of the TV. And Sports Science was explaining how fast Devin Hester was. And I'm looking, being from Chicago, Devin Hester is the man. He's the fastest man alive for the Chicago Bears. You know what I'm saying? I'm looking like, he ain't fast. I'm faster than him, man. Like, he ain't nothing, man. If, if that was me, I, I'd be even faster. And my friends are looking at me like, bro, stop. Like, you're not fast. You're not even faster than the fastest guy at our high school. And I'm like, well, who's the fastest guy at our high school? And they were like, well, I don't know. He's probably on the track team. And I'm like, track? He was like, yeah, so let's, let's, I bet you, if you try out for the track team and you're the, you gotta beat the fastest guy. And that's when I would consider you fast if you beat the fastest guy on the track team. So I was just like, all right, bet. Well, I'm about to try out for track. And I was kind of apprehensive about it because at the time I'm wearing baggy clothes. Like that's all I wore. And I just re remember, I realized that all the track guys wore these little skimpy outfits. And I was like, man, I can't get down like that. But you know, that was, that was something I had to like change about myself. So I go and luckily enough, the, the following week was track tryouts. And the first day of tryouts was testing and they tested the broad jump, the vertical jump and the 40 yard dash. So I'm like, okay. So I'm eyeing everybody. I show up with my baggy shorts and my big white tee and my big basketball shoes. And everybody looking at me like, who the hell is this kid? You know? And I'm, I'm watching everybody do their thing. And the first uh, test that we did was the standing broad jump. Now, I wasn't too familiar with the broad jump. And, but as I would see people go and do their jumps, it would remind me of when I was a kid in the grocery store, I would hop from tile to tile. 
you know, pretending that the other tiles were lava. So I, it was familiar to me. I knew, I knew that, you know, if I did what I did in the grocery store, I'd be just fine. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's kind of funny. So the first person goes, they jump whatever distance. The third per second person, third person, I'm the fifth person in line and everybody's just like doing their jump. So I'm just like, all right, so it's my turn. And I swing my arms back and then there it is. I jump like 10 feet, broad jump. I have the furthest jump of all the track uh, athletes. And the coaches look at me, the kids look at me like, what the hell? They weren't expecting it, you know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I don't know what I just did because it was my first time ever broad jumping before. And so, you know, the next, the next test was the vertical jump. Now, everybody knew I played basketball, you know what I'm saying? So they were like, well, okay, that's expected. You have, you have hops, you play basketball. And so now we're, in the, we're going to the vertical jump and everybody's like expecting me to do well. The first guy goes, he jumps like 30, 30 inches in their vertical. And now it's finally my turn, you know what I'm saying? And I just, it reminded me of dunk. I was dunking like my sophomore year of high school. So it was easy for me. And I was just like, I would jump, boom. I had a 34 inch vertical. And everybody looked at me like, who the hell is this kid? You know what I'm saying? Like he's he's placing first in all of the of the uh testings. So they're like they're like amazed, but they're still like, okay, well, he plays basketball, so you know, he has that that hopping background. So I was like, okay. Now it's the 40 yard dash. And mind you, in Chicago, last three months of high school, it's it's still wintertime. So we had to do the 40 dash in the gymnasium. And here I am with basketball shoes. I'm ready to hoop my basketball gear. And everybody was like, okay, we see he can jump. Let's see if he can run. And now the fastest guy, he's like looking at me. You know what I'm saying? The fastest guy, he's like, okay, you, I see what you got, but you're not about to beat me in this 40 dash. This is what I do. So the first person goes, second person goes, and now it's the fastest quote unquote guy on the track team. He goes and everybody was like cheering him on, like, let's go. Cause he's, He's fast. So he runs his time. Boom. The coach looks at the time and is like, wow, that's the fastest time today. You know what I'm saying? He ran like a 4-6 something in the 40. And, like, he's kind of like, yeah, like kind of, you know, doing this little, you know, whatever because he gets the fastest time. And it's finally my turn. And now I'm not familiar with running. I just know I, I better run like as, as if something's chasing me. Run as if you're running from a dog or something, a pit bull or something. So, you know, I get on the line. The coach screams, ready, set, go. And I just take off. And I'm running like as if something's chasing me. And I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. And as soon as I know it, I just hear this beep. And the time goes off. And I just look back. The coach is looking down at his stopwatch. And he looks at me. And he just keeps looking at his stopwatch. And I walk closer to him. He, he looks at me. And I like, I asked him, I was like, so what's the time? He was like, you just ran a four, five, eight, the fastest time. You just beat the fastest guy on the track team. And this is your first time running a 40. And I looked at him. I was like, well, okay, so I'm fast. All right. And he looks at me. He was like, you know what? If you don't stay with track, I'm going to choke you. Now, at the time, he's this big, grizzly, like, football player coach. He, he, he coached the football team. You know how in high school football coaches coach everything. So I'm looking at him, and I'm 125 pounds soaking wet. So I'm looking at him I'm like, well, yeah, you got it, boss. <laughs> you know, that was an intimidating man. I wasn't going to say no. 
but I was apprehensive because I didn't know if my mom was going to let me do track because of my grades. I would never show up to school. So I'm like, all right, I don't know how I'm going to explain this to my mom. Like, I'm not technically supposed to be doing a sport. You know what I'm saying? And my coach ended up talking to my mom and she, he was pretty much telling her like, look, your son has a gift. Like he came in here, he did everything that, you know, it takes someone that someone years to do, you know what I'm saying? And he did this in one day, you know what I'm saying? So I, from that day forth, I stayed with track. I got the blessing from my mom to keep going. And, um, I ended up making state my, uh, my senior year of high school, the last three months of high school, I ended up making state, didn't place as well as I wanted to. Um, but there was one, when one point in time during that season, I ended up breaking the school record in the high jump. And the following week, my coach tells me to come into his office. And uh, this was pretty much the start of where I am today. And Usually when people tell me, oh, I need to talk to you after class or I need you to see me in my office, I'm thinking I'm in trouble. You know what I'm saying? It's another detention coming or a Saturday school. Like, oh, man, I wasn't like a menace, but I was like the class clown that everybody loved. But, you know, I still had to be reprimanded by my actions and stuff, even though I was like cool with all the deans and teachers and stuff. They still had to punish me in some form or fashion. So I go into my coach's office and he hands me a list of uh, a list and I'm looking at this list and it's like Ohio State, Illinois University, Iowa State, all these big 10 schools. There's a few D3 and D2 schools. And I'm looking like, what is this? And he was like, those are the schools that are interested in you, but you're not going to be able to go to these schools because your grade point average is too low and your ACT scores is too low. And then I was like, dang, so why you even show me this? Like, you just like eat like killing my dream right now. And he was like, you want to know, you want to know something? You want to know the reason why you didn't make the basketball team the years that you didn't, you, you were getting cut? I was like, why? He was like, well, the school thought you were a liability because of your uh, impairment. And they thought that if you were to fall or hurt yourself, you can go blind. So that's why, and you wouldn't wear your sports goggles. I used to wear these big sports goggles and I'm like, this is not cool. This is not me. And it drew attention to me. So you know how like in school, I'm thinking I'm a spectacle. I'm thinking I'm the, the one attention because I have all these like visual uh, enhancements, like magnifying glass and large books, all of this stuff that people would just look at and like ask me questions. And I'm just like, so uncomfortable. So when I, it came to wearing my sports goggles, I hated to do that because everybody would always like look at me and like, I hated that. I just wanted to be included. So uh, he gave me that and he was just like, well, I asked him, what, what, what can I do to be able to be another uh, candidate to go to these schools? And he referred me to a junior college. Um, so big, big shout out to my high school coach, Rocco Odo of Warren Township High School, Go Blue Devils. And um, he, he connected me with a woman that is literally my second mom um, away from home. Her name is Ren Renee Zellner of Harper College, Go Hawks. Um, and she pretty much changed my whole perspective on life um, overall. Not, it wasn't just track, it was school, my identity, understanding my disability because she's a mother with a child that has a disability 
So she gave me another perspective on just how to navigate and there's resources that you can use. And I mean, these were talks, my parents did a great job on connecting me with resources and always giving me outlets to understand my disability. But being at a young age, I just didn't understand it because I was in denial. But now when I'm in college, it's different. I have my own responsibilities. I'm now living on my own. I have to like find food on my own. I have to do everything on my own. So like my coach really was that piece that really helped me understand a lot of things that I, were, I was going through at that time. Um, I suffered through a lot of identity. I had an identity crisis because again, I'm trying to navigate my disability and I'm trying to understand it while trying to accept it because for so long, I lived in this world where I was just an athlete. Now I have to manage my schoolwork. I have to really buckle down in being active within my community because now it's just, it's a, it's a new place for me. Um, so that was, that was something I had to do. And uh, at, while my time at Harper, I, would, I broke the school record there in the high jump, um, was a national champion there as well. Um, I was able to get a scholarship to Lewis University, which is crazy because I remember in high school, I wrote these, uh, these uh, a list of goals. And on that, on that list was to be a Hall of Famer at Lewis University for basketball, um, play basketball at Lewis University, do all these things basketball oriented. And now I'm going to Lewis University for a totally different sport that I thought I would never be playing. You know what I'm saying? So now I'm at Lewis University. I'm a five-time All-American uh, national champion in the high jump. And hopefully one day I can be in the Hall of Fame, just like my mom. And uh, shout out to Lewis University, go Flyers. Dana Schwarting, head coach, um, amazing guy. Uh, he coached me to my second quote-unquote national championship at Lewis University um, for the high jump. So that's pretty cool. Um, amazing program. They've done a lot for me. and. Um, now I'm here, part of the Paralympics. I uh, joined the Paralympics in 2017 and never was interested in joining the Paralymp Paralympics before. Totally didn't even know about it. Every time I would hear the Paralympics, I would think Special Olympics. You know, I'm like, no, I, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to compete against the best in the world. You know, I had this dream of being the best in basketball. Now I have this dream to be the best in track and field. Like, I, I can't just... To me, just being there isn't good enough, you know? So um, my whole life, or my whole life in track and field, you know, I'm saying Olympics. I want to be an Olympic gold medalist. And it's my senior year of college, and I'm kind of not understanding what's the process on trying to be a professional track athlete. Mind you, my senior year of college, but it's my fourth year doing the sport. So I'm totally unfamiliar with the process of being a professional. It's totally different from your regular sports. There's no draft or anything. You know, you don't get drafted to a league in track and field. You just sign a contract for a major deal with a company, and that's it. And you just go compete overseas. So my senior year, I'm at Grand Valley State indoor. And I see this girl, she's high jumping, but she has no affiliation to any college. So I'm like, okay, 
I need to figure out who she is and like who she's like affiliated with. And also I thought she was attractive. So I was like, ha, oh, this is perfect. I do high jump. She does high jump. Bing. Like this is going to be easy. So she ends up getting done competing. She obviously wins. And I approach her. I was like, oh, hey, you know, my name is Isaac. Woo off the bam. And I tell her, you know, how, who are you, who you're affiliated with? She's saying, well, I'm a professional track athlete. I was like, oh, wow. You know, it's my senior year. I'm trying to go pro. And um, I'm also legally blind. I'm trying to join the Paralympics. I don't know what possessed me to say that, but it just came out. You know, it's, it was mentioned to me by my, uh, by my junior college coach, Renee Zellner, but I would totally ignore it. And for some reason, it told me, you know, I need to say this, too, because I'm thinking maybe that's a, another marketing tool. You know, oh, I am able to be a Paralympic athlete and I'm also able to, you know, be an Olympic athlete. So I'm thinking that way as well. And she was like, oh, you do the Paralympics? Like the Paralympics? She, and I was like, well, not quite. I'm, I can. She was like, wow, my boyfriend is in the Paralympics. So I'm like, oh boyfriend okay you know and I'm like I'm like kind of like hurt because you know this is going the totally wrong way but she was like yeah I can introduce you to my boyfriend here's his number you can ask him anything and I'm like I was trying to get your number but I guess I'll take your boyfriend's number whatever whatever so she gives me her boyfriend's number and his name is Roger Townsend and it's probably I, I'm actually happy she gave me his number because he introduced me to uh, a community that I wasn't even aware of. Um, and he pretty much schooled me on the Paralympics about what they, what they are, um, that they're parallel to the Olympics. It's just the Olympics, but for people with physical ailments, impairments and disabilities. And that range from like, from having one leg, no legs to being totally blind. Um, and he was telling me like what he accomplished and, you know, the places he, he's been through the Paralympics. And from that, from that day forth, I was like in love with it. I was like, yeah, I need to be part of this. This is amazing. And it was like, you need to, you need to teach me more, like give me more. How, how, how can I do this? And he was like, well, you know, I'm not too familiar with your classification, but I can introduce you to someone that could direct you into, because in Paralympics, there's classifications. He was an arm uh, dis disability. I'm a visual impairment. So his classification is much different from mine. And we don't, they don't ever mix classifications. So you have to compete against your specific classification. And mine happened to be T13, um, the visually impaired. Uh, so he ends up introducing me to Markeith Price. Markeith Price is now like my brother. Like he was the older brother. I always wanted because he's pretty much taught me and uh, he showed me a, the ropes about the, uh, with the Paralympics um, for the visually impaired. And uh, he was pretty much schooling me on what I needed to do, the paperwork I needed to have just to be a part of the uh, program. And sure enough, I ended up being classified. He's also a T13. Um, he does the 400 long jump. And I was able to be classified in 2017 at the Desert Challenge, Desert Challenge Games in Arizona. And um, from that day forth, you know, I was, I was a T13 Paralympic track and field athlete. Uh, later that year, it wasn't my best year performance-wise. Uh, I was no hiding the entire year. 
like out outdoor season indoor prior to that outdoor season indoor season i ended up making it to usa's i made it to usa's a handful of times uh for the able body um so i competed there that indoor season placing like eighth place i think i tied for eighth that indoor for the high jump and then but that outdoor season was totally different you know i was i couldn't get over the bar for the for the love of it you know what i'm saying it was pretty tough um but luckily for me for some reason i always have this this habit of competing it competing well when it mattered so um it was the world championships in london for uh paralympics and that that meet i was able to break the world record a handful of times uh which was amazing being in london with that amazing crowd just cheering me on and hearing the chant usa um it was a it was an incredible feeling to be able to perform at a high level and to you know show my talent at at this big venue where the olympics used to take place so that was pretty amazing and now i'm here you know uh haven't been to a Paralympic Games yet. Uh, I was looking to make that this this year, but you know, with the pandemic happening, that that was postponed. So I'm working now this year to not only be a Paralympian, but also an Olympian um, in the high jump and long jump. Oh my gosh, you just That's dropped so much info and what a what a career you've had so far and you're like still super young so there's so much more i'm sure you're going to be adding to that i want to kind of jump on the coattails of something that you said earlier i've been taking notes and my journal is full because you said so many interesting and awesome pieces of wisdom um, but one thing I've noticed in the things that you've shared so far is just how tenacious and relentless you are in that like you were being cut from the team and you were just like, I'm going to, I'm going to make it, I'm going to do what it takes to make it. But then that kind of confidence and like knowing that you were a born athlete and that you were really good at all of these things, just automatically, it's just in you. So we're talking about this like tenacious confidence piece paired with this kind of like, I'm not good at school situation. And how did you navigate those feelings? And what was that like for you? We have a lot of student athletes who listen. And I just think that there's probably a lot of them out there who can relate. I know that when I was in school, I felt that way too. So I'm just curious what your thoughts. Yeah, it really, it really took me a while to like really feel comfortable in school. At first, again, you know, I'm in denial. I, I'm not trying to believe I have a disability at all. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I don't want to have help. You know, I don't, I don't want, I don't want this at all. I don't want this burden. It was a burden to me in high school. Um, it took until like college to fully understand like, okay, you're not different. You just have to do certain things differently. And yes, it may take a little longer. It may take, it may be a little harder for you, but at the end of the day, you get the job done just like everyone else. You know what I'm saying? It's just how you go about things. So I think it has to, it has to deal with a lot of maturity and also just accepting you know, being acceptance of whatever it is, you know what I'm saying, whatever you may be going through and not trying to run away from it. And when you run away from things, it's, you're running tired. You're making yourself tired and things are just going to be worse when you just keep running away, running away, because you're not going to ever escape the fact that you have a disability. 
I can't escape the fact that I'm not going or escape the fact that I'm never going to have 2020 vision. That's my reality. So it took me some time to actually live in my reality instead of trying to live other people's reality and trying to fit in with them or trying to fit into that quote unquote normal, you know. So just really being accepting of who you are and what you're what you have and working with it. You know what I'm saying? And um, for me, my disability has taught me to um, always be, be appreciative of everything. Like I appreciate waking up and being able to see the sunrise, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, see the green grass, even though I can't see the definition in the green grass, but I can see that enough, you know what I'm saying? And that's my favorite part of just, you know, life is just waking up and being able to see because with my condition it's progressive. So God forbid later down the road, my, I'm not able to see anymore. So um, just really accepting what I have and appreciating what I do have, you know what I'm saying? Not ever feeling like I need to have more, you know, because everything is given to me um, in the sense of like enjoying myself, like just enjoying everything around me. I mean, what a great mentality. I love your attitude. Um, I want to go back and talk a little bit more about the coaches in your life. So I know you mentioned in high school, you were really so welcomed on the track team just by your apparent talent, just your natural gift. So I'm just curious how the relationships with the coaches in your lives have shaped you as both an athlete and just as a person in life. Absolutely. So I'm blessed to even say that I have an amazing support system, raising from friends and family to coaches and teammates. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody knew, like everybody that's close to me, they know my situation and they never treated me different. They always included me in onto things and they helped me to their best ability. So I am extremely blessed to have those type of people in my life. And I know for a fact that, and I'm even more blessed to have coaches in my life to you know, not, not only teach me about the sport, but teach me about life, teach me about my disability, teach me about more than just you know, my talent, you know what I'm saying? And allow me to be myself and being comfortable within the environment that they place me in. Um, my, uh, my, my high school coach, he believed in me. You know what I'm saying? He believed that I had a gift and he wasn't going to allow me to waste it. He wasn't going to allow me to say, oh, I'm not doing track. I just came here just to see if I was fast. He really much, he pretty much kept me in this sport because he saw something in me. So um, shout out to Coach Odo again for just even believing in me because that's, that's what it takes to be a coach. You have to really believe in your athletes. Coach Renee Zellner, she was, she, like I said, my mom away from home. She gave me that, that motherly guidance, love, everything that a mother would give you. You know, that's what she gave to me. And she didn't, she didn't know me from, from anywhere. You know what I'm saying? She just gave me that genuine love. She just saw something in me and she just, and she sees everything in all her athletes. But, you know, for me, she just gave me so much. And uh, she taught me so many things. Um, about the particular event that I was doing. Because in the high jump, I didn't know what I was doing. I just saw a bar and I would jump over it, you know. And the funny thing about the high jump, just to throw this in there, 
I don't see the bar until like two steps right before I take off. So I, I feel like that's my advantage. You know what I'm saying? Everybody else sees the obstacle from, from a distance and it may seem daunting to them. To me, it's just like, all right, I don't see nothing until I'm ready to jump. And then by the time I'm jumping, I'm already over the bar. Uh, so she helped me understand that the high jump for most people is a visual battle. I eliminate the visual battle and I use my sense of feel. She always told me, like, you have an amazing sense of feel. Like, I can feel my uh, space space and time. Like, I have an amazing sense of that. And just body awareness of where my body is, positioning. She was just, she just told me, she broke it down in the sense of, even though you can't see, you have this sense that you rely on that helps you get over the bar. You know, and I didn't quite look at it that way. I just thought I was jumping. So she made it make sense for myself. And um, I thank her for that. And then my college coach, uh, Dana Schwarting, he just pretty much took all of that and sharpened it. Like he just sharpened me to the point where I can do the high jump blindfolded and still jump seven feet. You know what I'm saying? That's how he just really much, he just defined everything for me. And then, you know, I had a battle um, because now, you know, my coaches in the past, they weren't specifically high jump coaches. They were just track coaches. They didn't specialize in my particular events. Coach, Coach Odo specialized in football. <laughs> Renee Zellner, she specialized in throws and the sprints. Uh, Dana Schwarting, he specialized in the hurdles. I never really had a high jump coach, and I was still able to find success. And I always told myself, you know, if I ever get a high jump coach that specialized in my events, I'm going to take off. You know, I'm going to be the greatest. There's no doubt about it. I'm already doing, you know, what people that have coaches, I'm doing better than them. You know what I'm saying? And um, sure enough, fast forward to the Paralympics, I finally had the opportunity to be coached by a high jump coach. And it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I thought, you know, I was going to be able to jump seven, eight, you know, right off the bat. And um, I had to change a lot of things about myself um, being trained about uh, by him. You know, great coach, um, but his training methods wasn't good for me. And um, it was totally the opposite of what I was used to as a coach. You know, I had coaches that really cared about me as a person. and you know, they fed into me, they, they poured into me, they cared for me. And it wasn't just a sport to them. It was more of, I want to see this kid grow. Um, coming into the professional realm, I had a coach that didn't show that he cared. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, oh, you either compete good or you compete bad and that's it. And I wasn't used to that. And I, and I kind of changed myself to fit that mold, to fit his you know, style of coaching, and it proved to not work. And it took me a long time to understand that, Isaac, the more and more you stay in this program, the less and less you're getting better. You ha Even though he's the quote-unquote best high jump coach in the world, you know what I'm saying, uh, he's not the best high jump coach for you. You have to make the decision whether or not you want to – stay here and just work with what you have or take things in your own hand and allow your destiny to be up to you and not someone else. And it took me three years to realize, you know, um, 
that I'm in charge. I have to be in charge. If I want to be successful, I, I have to do it. No one else can. And um, I end up switching coaches. And the coach now um, reminds me more of the coaches that I've, I'm familiar with, like my high school coach, this coach that I'm with now. All I need is someone that's there. You know, I don't need you to really teach me too much. I need you to work with me and let me know that you're there. You know what I'm saying? And that you believe in my vision. And, um, and as long as you can do that, we're going to be good. Because, like I said, it took me four years to jump 7-3 and win a national title division two. And I know I can jump higher and that's with like not having a coach or not having the materials. And I was able to accomplish something that, you know, most people try to accomplish for a long time. And um, I know I have it. It just takes that, that next, that next step, you know? My so, goodness. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So you've said a lot of other really amazing things and I just want to touch on, you've kind of like been talking about this idea of living your reality. And I think that's kind of what you had to re-realize here with your coach that wasn't working out. But you said something else that I found to be really interesting in that you're saying you're being told by one of your coaches that it's a visual like challenge for most people and that you don't have that visual challenge because you're not seeing the bar until you're more up on it. So mm -hmm. in that sense, it's kind of almost an advantage, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just curious um, if there are other instances in your life outside of even sports where you're turning what other people might say is an impairment into an advantage. Absolutely, so I would, I would definitely say my perspective on life. Um, my disability has definitely shaped my perspective on how I view a lot of things and how I go about things. Um, I like to correlate the high jump, especially to how I view life. Um, high jump is a event that involves you jumping over something and you only are able to go on to the next level. If you clear the bar in life, you see, you can see the obstacle and at times people, when they see that obstacle, they shy away from it. They want to go left. They want to go right. They want to do anything but go straight. For me, I don't see the obstacle until the obstacle is dead on. You know what I'm saying? In the high jump. So I don't run away from obstacles because I jump over them. You know, I, I can't run away because I'm fearless. And I take that approach to life because in life you have to be fearless. You have to be courageous. You have to be risk a risk taker because that's what I am I always take risks I always challenge myself because the outcome is unseen you never know until you actually try to do something what the outcome may be and even then you still don't really know the outcome until the outcome comes you know what I'm saying as roundabout that may sound it's just like don't be fearful of anything because you just never know what can come from that fear you know, it can be something good on the other side, you know what I'm saying? Um, and the lesson in between that, you know, it's not just, okay, obstacle and then overcome. The lesson in between is the most cherishable thing because from that lesson, you grow, you know what I'm saying? Um, and that's how I look at life, man. Like life is just a living high jump. I'm going to keep running into obstacles because I wake up literally blind. So every day there's going to be some obstacle that I have to overcome. And for me to not be able to see it 
until I'm in front of it and I got to face it right then and there. I like that. I like that challenge. I love that challenge, you know, and I embrace it. So um, that's how I really, you know, that's my perspective on life. And I can, I can only thank my disability because, you know, that's, that's what gave me this perspective because I lived with it my whole life and I had to overcome so much every day. Okay. Super tearing up over here. Um, <laughs> gosh, that's just so powerful what you're talking about. And, you know, it seems like there's quite a bit of gratitude that's trickling into just your daily practice and maybe fueling you to even continue to grow as an athlete. Can you talk about how you practice gratitude and stuff a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So the one thing that I love about sports, and this is just me, I don't know if other people feel the same, but with doing this sport in particular, or doing sports, any type of sport, I've, I've experienced every emotion imaginable with doing this sport. I experienced hopelessness, sorrow, you know, just deep, like, depression. And I experienced the triumph, the happiness, the joy, the, like, oh, my God, I could accomplish anything. And with being able to experience all these emotions, I can identify how I feel when I feel. And I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't experience the things I experienced with this sport. Like the last three years has been the toughest three years of my life doing this sport, but it has shaped me as a person um, overall because if I didn't go through that, I had to make a, a, a big decision, right? This last year, I had to make a big, before the pandemic, this is crazy. Most people will even do this. So this is what I mean, right? So this year, this is the first year, or not the first year, this is the year that I decide to um, switch coaches. And it was at the end of indoor season. And it was my very last meet indoor season in New Mexico, Albuquerque. I was at the convention center. And I usually make indoor nationals. It's easy to me. I usually clear seven feet. But this particular year, I'm not, I'm not clearing six, seven. And I'm like, what is going on? So this meet is my final meet to make it to USA's. And I'm, I clear the first bar. It took me two tries to clear the first bar. And I'm just like, okay, I don't know how this meet is going to go. You know, it took me two tries just to clear over six, seven. Man, this is going to be rough. And the bar goes up to maybe six, eight or something. And I clear it, I clear, but it was like funky. It's finally, and I'm struggling. And for some reason, I'm just not feeling like Isaac. I'm not feeling like IJP. I usually clear these bars with clearance, like easy. And it took me two tries at six, 11 and three quarters where I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to play around. I need to go put this bar up at the height that I need to make it into USA's and then I deal with it, whatever. You know what I'm saying? So the bar is at seven feet. That's what I need to do to make it to USA's. I've seen this bar hundreds of times, cleared, cleared seven feet hundreds of times, you know? So this is easy to me, no matter what the circumstances, I know I can clear seven feet. In fact, I'm in London and I have whatever I was, what was going on with my Achilles on my off leg. I was able to jump seven one with a like bogus Achilles. So I know I can clear it now, you know what I'm saying? So as I'm getting ready to jump, it felt like, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Space Jam, but in the movie Space Jam, you know, there's this one scene where I think they're in New York and the Monstars strip all the athletes of their powers. 
I felt like that was happening to me as I'm preparing to jump. And as I'm like going through my little uh, routine before I jump, my first initial step, my legs felt like Bambi. Like I just, like they started to wobble. And I'm just like, I'm ignoring that feeling. I'm ignoring that feeling. And I'm still going on with my approach. And it was by far the worst jump of my life. Like, I think I hit the bar with my head and I was just like, okay, Isaac, this isn't you. And right then and there, I'm like, I need to make a decision. This, this decision is going to alter the rest of this year. Now, mind you, the pandemic didn't happen yet. So it's still Olympic year. I'm still thinking that I'm going to Olympic trials and I'm kind of unsure because now I'm, I'm jumping like crap. Um, I'm coming off of injuries and stuff. So I'm like, dang, man. Like, I don't know what's about to happen, but I know I need to make a change. And that's when I made the decision to switching coaches. At that same meet, I called the other coach. I'm like, look, I need to I need to talk to you. I'm thinking about getting coached by you. And he's not a high jump coach. He's a he's an Olympic hurdler medalist. He's a 110. His name is Tony Campbell. And he did the hurdles in, uh, for the Olympics in 1988. He's a medalist. And he doesn't know as much as the coach that I'm leaving because I'm leaving the quote unquote world's best high jump coach, the guru of all jumps, right? To go to someone that doesn't know nothing about high jump, but this is what I'm familiar with. You know what I'm saying? The coaches in the past, they didn't know too much about high jumps. They just like, Hey, just do your thing. And I'm going to teach you other things, you know, that, that can possibly help you. So that, I hope that answered your question as to like, like what I mean, how this sport helped me like to make decision, like decision making, you know, it was tough making that decision, but I knew I had to make that decision, you know, and understanding my emotions, having a grasp over my emotions, because sports, they provoke so many emotions, you know, whether you're a fan or rather if you're a person actually doing the sport, you know, you're going to see people cry of joy, you're going to see people cry of sadness. And you're going to see people laugh, you know what I'm saying? Or be cheerful that their rival team is losing, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, that that right there is so much – I carry that into my actual life, you know what I'm saying? I'm always expressive. Um, I know how to express myself and, and communicate effectively. And I owe that to just being an athlete and communicating with my coaches, communicating with my teammates, being an example for my teammates in college – as to like, this is what it takes to be a champion. This is what I do. And, um, you know, just finding your, your niche, what works for you is very important, whether it be in the sport or outside of the sport, finding what makes you happy and what makes you thrive. Because a lot of times I find for myself, um, every, every time or every position I was in, rather it be high school up until college, I was the top athlete professional i'm at the bottom you know what i'm saying um i always wanted to train with the will clays the britney reese's the you know the legends of my sport and now i'm finally having the opportunity i'm trained by the best jump coach in the world i'm finally here but at the same time i found myself being accomplishment oriented i find myself trying to you know look at their accomplishments and be like i need that you know and forgetting who I am, you know, I'm, of course, you know, it's, it's a pro it's pros and cons to that, you know, being accomplishment oriented. Right. 
you can use that as motivation and strive for something, or you can totally forget who you are as a person. And that's what I did. I was forgetting who I was and I stripped myself from where I came from, like what I know to fit this mold that wasn't necessarily fit for me. You know what I'm saying? I was trying to fit in. I, every day I would come to, come to practice with a chip on my shoulder because I felt like I wasn't des deserving enough to uh, be around these legends because now I'm not looked at as a future Olympian. I'm just looking, I'm looked at as a Paralympic athlete. You know what I'm saying? My whole life, I've been in able sport, able body sports that, you know, so I'm competing with the best of the best. And I am part of the best of the best, but now I'm not even considered. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of things I had to overcome with even moving to the training center and only being seen as someone with a disability and not see how now I'm not being included in something that I've always been included in. And so having to navigate that was tough in itself because now I have to start over. Now I'm only looked at as a Paralympic. The thing totally switched, you know, um, and trying to understand what was going on at that time was very difficult for me because I'm trying to fit in. I'm trying to, you know, uh, show my, uh, show my worth. I'm trying to show that I deserve to train with you guys and I'm just as good as you guys, but I'm not being looked at. It took me a long time to get out of that mindset. And now, you know, I found who I who I am now. You know what I'm saying? Going through that made me even stronger because now I'm like, okay. I used to say I wanted to be an Olympian. Now I want to win. You know what I'm saying? And I believe I'm going to win. I'm going to be the first Paralympic athlete to win Olympics and come back and win the uh, Paralympics. That's my goal. So, and um, when I say it, I, I believe it. I used to tell myself, you know, and this is the funny thing. I had to go through all that I went through these past three years to understand what it meant to believe in yourself. I used to always go around and say, oh, I'm going to make it to USA's. I'm going to try. I'm going to win. I would never believe it. I would never believe it. Every time I would say it, I would never believe it. And what happens? I always place last at USA's or at the bottom half. Now, when, when you ask me or when I say I'm about to win, I believe every single letter in the in the phrase, I'm going to win because I am going to win because I believe it. And I've seen it multiple times with me just winning. So uh, when it happens, this is going to be great, you know. And um, I'm enjoying the process. A lot of people, like, I could have quit this sport after 2015, you know what I'm saying, after I noted, no hide it at um, my very first USA's and the person I was competing against was the person I always wanted to compete against. And I competed like trash. And at the end of the competition, I asked this guy for a picture and he looked at me and he said, no. And I was just like, whoa, this is the guy that I look up to in the sport or the guy that I like aspire to be. And he's like this type of person. And I could have quit then, but I, I, it hit my confidence. Don't get me wrong. It definitely hit my confidence and I wanted to quit, but something kept telling me, keep going, keep going. And even these last three years, you know, I could have quit after I was competing like trash, but something just told me, keep going, keep going. And that right there just like reassured me that what I'm doing is for a reason. And I had to go through these hardships. I had to go through 
the lack of confidence. I had to regain my confidence to make my confidence even stronger. You know what I'm saying? I had to go through the the unknowingness of, you know, what's going to happen if I miss this jump or, you know what I'm saying? I had to go through all these things, the the different types of coaches, you know, to know, okay, this is what Isaac needs to be successful. And, you know, that shaped me as an athlete, that shaped me as a professional uh, track athlete, and it, it shapes me as a person. Man, what a beautiful story and inspiration to be totally true to yourself. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Well, we have a few minutes left. I, I guess my question would be, what is next for you? What are you excited about? I feel motivational speaking in your future. <laughs> um, just I'm so like inspired by this conversation. But um, aside from motivational speaking in the next five to 10 year plan, what is Isaac going to be doing working toward the Olympics? And what are you excited about? Man, um, you know, that is a great question. I've always been a person that never plans and I let life take its course because, you know, that that's just who I am. I just go with the wind. Um, but what I will say is since this pandemic happened, um, I was able to tap into a different realm in my life, um, uh, a realm that I'm, I never thought I would be even stepping in place of. Um, I always found myself to be very creative because even in my athletics, I would create my own workouts. I would create new techniques to help me, you know, get better. You know, my creativity was always there. Never in my wildest dreams, I would ever think that I'll be writing something and using my creativity in an artist in like an art format. So this pandemic happens, right? And, you know, like I mentioned multiple times in this interview, like I'm an athlete and I always like center myself, but I'm a professional athlete. So now I'm only allowed to work out X amount of time throughout the day because there's only so many things I can do in home because the gym is closed. The track is closed. Every, the whole world is closed. So I'm only, I can only do so much. Right. Um, so the rest of the day, you know, after I'm done working out, I have this, I have the rest of the day to do whatever. And all I can do is watch TV, watch what's ever on Netflix. And I begin to get so bored with what's on TV. Like there has to be something else. In the midst of everything, you know, the social, the social injustices are happening. So now not only is there nothing to watch on TV, I'm seeing people that look just like me being killed and being brutalized. So I'm like, there has to be a change. Like I want to show, you know, people of color in a different light. I don't see enough representation. I don't see enough positive uh, imagery of you know people of color. So I begin to create things in my head, little TV shows, movies in my head, and I will watch them. My imagination is crazy. I just don't know. Like I literally can sit and people will look at me like, what the hell are you thinking about? I'm just in my own thoughts, just watching my own TV shows. Um, so I begin to like, have these imaginations and envision these things. And I was like, man, this shit is good. I need to write this down. So I start writing. And I first started off with this superhero that um, highlighted a young, and it's pieces of my life, different experiences that, I, uh, that I've been through that I write about. And um, this particular uh, was highlighting a young boy that loved music um, who grew, is growing up in the inner city, crime infested, 
and his mom is the chief of police at the uh, police department that he goes to. So his mom and he, his dad ended up being killed to gun violence and woo off the bank. So I started to write this and he was a superhero. He ends up obtaining these powers, you know what I'm saying? And then something hit me and it told me to put this on pause because there's something else that I need to highlight because we've seen this story before, this superhero that, you know, this Spider-Man type superhero, you know what I'm saying? That, you know, I wanted to do something different. And so I start to think, and these like little things were like, sub, like these little hints would hit me. And I'm like, what is this? And I wanted to hi highlight women of color and giving them a different representation, a different image that they can be like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool, you know? And I wanted to highlight them in superhero form. And so I been I began I I, I been to I begin to think, and then I I begin to think even further, and I was like, how can I make these women superheroes? Do I make them track related? Do I make them like mini Flojos or maybe even the relay team from 2016? Like they can be like speedsters. That's an idea that I do have in mind. I do want to do a superhero like movie about like women in track, but that's neither here nor there. Let me stay on topic, right? So I was just like, hmm, mythology something happens and just mythology hits me and every every since i was ever since i was little the mythology that i would know is the greek mythology of the the zeus's the the thors the hercules i'm like well there has to be african ancestry somewhere what about african mythology so i began to write a storyline about african ancestry and african-american culture and how they come together and it's a story about these three extraordinary women in Washington, D.C. It takes place in Washington, D.C. on Howard University's campus. And these three extraordinary women are bonded through Afri ancient African ancestry. They have hidden powers that they're not aware of. And they somehow stumble upon these stones or these stones find them. And they, they end up getting these stones and possessing powers of African goddesses. And the three goddesses that I highlight is the goddess Oya, who is pretty much Storm from X-Men, um, the goddess Oshun, who is the goddess of the ocean, and the goddess Allah, who is the goddess of the earth. And these, these goddess, the powers, their powers reside in these three stones, and these stones find these three women because this new evil has arised. And it's called the Guardians of Orisha, and it's it's really it's I'm excited because it comes out next month. Um, you can find all I'm promoting it on my personal page on Instagram at ijpijp underscore 2016. I'm sorry, I kind of almost forgot my uh, my Instagram tag, but it's at ijp underscore 2016. You can find uh, details about the books. Keep up with the book. You can also find it on the guardian or the underscore guardian underscore Arisha also on Instagram. And you can also find it on my Facebook page, Isaac Charmon, John Paul. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a short read. It's not too long. It's an eight chapter book um, that highlight, and it's a series of books. So there's multiple books coming out pertaining this particular, uh, uh, can't, think of the word, but there's multiple series of this book. Um, I, I create, I'm creating another, um, another book about 
I can't, I can't, I can, I, can, I, I get excited with my ideas. I got a lot of ideas, you know, um, so I'm stepping in the realm of writing. Um, never thought I would be a writer, but I knew that I would be able, I always wanted to influence and inspire the world in some form or fashion. So now that I'm doing this athletic thing, I'm able to inspire people this way. Um, I'm inspiring people with being able to tell my story, my personal story, but now, you know, getting into this writing, I'm able to tell my story in different ways and different forms. Um, and hopefully educating on educating people about different things. Like everything that I'm writing about is educational, but it's like interactive and very fun and very funny. Um, so, um, I think it'd be enjoyable. At first, I wanted to make it like a TV show, but it just came out as a book. So I'm, I'm writing books now. And hopefully- And TV next. <laughs> and TV and movies next, yes ma'am. How cool. It sounds like your books are kind of summing up who you are as well. Like just, you're describing like inspirational and fun and like that's you too, I feel. So <laughs> yes, um, thank you. My goodness. Thank you. Yeah, that was so cool. I was not expecting that at all. I mean, <laughs> the man of many talents. No kidding. Yes, yes, oh, we are so grateful for your time, Isaac. This was such a fun phone call. Yeah, man, seriously. It, it really was. Thank you guys for having me, man. This is this is big. Can I give one more thing before we get off? Absolutely. Um, I just want to give a big shout out because in the Paralympics, I don't think they give they're uh they're just do um the guide runners um they're amazing people um if you if you guys are not familiar with the guide runners guide runners are people that assist totally blind athletes totally blind i'm talking about you can't see nothing <laughs> they assist them in their um in their performances and two guide runners that i've met um when uh being part of the paralympics are great men they are the example of what humanity is. They're the personification of humanity. Just how they work with a totally blind athlete and the selflessness that they have just to see this man uh, accomplish their goals. So shout out to Jerome Avery, uh, Team Bravey, who, who works with uh, the fastest blind man, David Brown. And shout out to Wesley Williams, who is an incredible guy. His story and him working with Lex Gillette, Lex Gillette, amazing athlete. He's the the furthest long jumper, totally blind person to live. He's a, he has number of medals on the world stage, um, multiple time Paralympian. But to see that that teamwork is just how you would think humanity should be. That helping hand, helping your fellow man to be successful. And totally like not thinking that it's all about you and giving yourself up to someone else. That's just amazing to me. So big shout outs to Wesley Williams and Jerome Avery. I was impressed with Isaac's vulnerability and openness as he discussed his path so far. And I love how he's inspiring others to live within their disability. Probably my favorite quote from this entire episode was when he said, life is just a living high jump. Isn't it though? Are you doing what you can to raise the bar in your own life? Every bit of Isaac's story is such a testament to the power of finding people who believe in you enough to push you toward greatness. We are so excited to keep following along with Isaac as he continues to achieve great things and pushes forward toward Tokyo this summer. And if you've enjoyed this episode, 
please subscribe and consider leaving us a review so others can find us more easily and then share it on your social media. If you know someone who would be a great guest on our show, please tell us their story by nominating them at our website, sportfuelslife.com. Thanks for listening.